Great. Hi, everybody. And uh, we're going to be looking at the book of um, Job and those chapters and, and a lot of chapters in between. But what I thought we'd do, first of all, is um, I've written a very short um, kind of summary of the book of Job, with like one sentence for every chapter. And so what I thought we'd do is we, we would read this together. Now, what, we, what, what I'm going to need is about, I need five people to help me do this, okay? And you're going to have lines to read. I'll share the thing on the screen so you can start to see what I'm talking about. So hold on one second while I do this. And where has it gone? Here we go. Now, here you go. So you can see parts required. I'll be the narrator and Job. So we need Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, Elihu, and God. Okay, so you've all got short lines to say. So I'll, I'll just show you what, what it looks like as we go down. Um, here we go. So you've got Eliphaz, you know, does chapter four and chapter five. Then Job cuts back in in chapter six and chapter seven. Chapter eight is Bildad. Chapter nine is Job. And the idea is you don't say chapter six, Job or whatever, or chapter five, Eliphaz. You just read your line one after the other, knowing who you are. OK, so it, it will be a little bit uh, rough around the edges because we haven't practiced it. But it will give us a good sense of what this book is what's going on in this book. OK, so um, let's go back to the start. I need to try and see everybody. So hold on a second. So can you sort of wave at me positively with a smile on your face if you would like to be part of this? Um, I think in the story, it's assumed all the parts are, are men, but we can have men and women reading. Why not? So um, let's have uh, everybody volunteer. Great. So um, let's have, OK, Mary, can you be Eliphaz? And Zach, can you be, I'll tell you, Zach should be Zophar, Z for Z. So um, let's uh, have, OK, who else has got their hand up? Um, yeah, Schmitz, one of you, please, can you be Bildad? OK. Then we need Elihu, who comes in at the end with words of sort of wisdom. So we need what the one what? Okay, John's going to be Elihu, and then we need somebody to be God right at the end of the whole book. Who wants to do the words of God at the end? Anybody? Anybody at all? Dan. <laughs> Dan, can you be God, please? Yeah, great. Okay. So, do you get what we're doing? You don't say um, you don't say chapter four Eliphaz. You just you just say the line, and we read it through one line after the other, straight through from the start to the end. Um, does everybody remember who they are? If if you if you've got a speaking part, can you unmute yourself now so that you're ready to go? And am I unmuted? <laughs> there we go. Sorry, who was that? Zach. Zach, yeah, you're on. Un, you're unmuted. We can hear sure. you. Thank you. And. I think we are good to go. Okay, everybody happy? Wave at me frantically if you're not. Right, let's, let's give this a go. Okay, so I start. Job's first test, livestock, servants, and children. Job's second test, painful sores. Then Job curses the day of his birth. Do the innocent perish? Can a man be more righteous than God? Call on God. Do not despise his discipline. He will bless you again. I am in anguish. You are dismissing my pain. 
I will complain. Why are you messing with me, God? Why not forgive me if I've sinned? Is God unjust? Be pure and upright. Yes, but how can a mortal be righteous before God? You can't dispute with God or argue innocence. But I am blameless. I need a mediator. What is your charge? Can't you see I've done nothing wrong? Leave me alone to die. You are mocking God. How dare you? He is wise. Devote yourself to him. Ah, you to guys. There's no one wiser than you. Not. It's easy to have contempt for misfortune. The sovereign God has done this. You are worthless quacks. Better to be quiet. How would you fare before God? Though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. A man who is born of a woman is few of days and full of trouble. You undermine piety and hinder devotion to God. Are you the first man? Why are you so angry with God? It's wicked people who shake their fist at God. You miserable, long-winded comforters. God has worn me out. I am a byword. Come on, try again. Why call us stupid? God destroys the wicked. You attack me. I've done nothing wrong. God does not answer. You are pursuing me like God. But I know my Redeemer lives. The mirth of the wicked is brief. Listen, am I complaining to man? Actually, the wicked are often not snuffed out. God is punishing you for your sin. Submit to God. If I knew where to find God, I would present my innocence to him. Why has God not set times for judgment? The wicked prosper, the poor suffer, yet God cuts off the wicked. How can man, a worm, be righteous before God? God is utterly powerful. I will not agree with you ever. God brings terror on the wicked. Wisdom is not easily found. The fear of the Lord is wisdom. Seek him. How I long for when God was with me and all was well. Now I am mocked. If I've done wrong, let me receive what I deserve. But I am innocent and God knows it. I am very angry. Job, you are justifying yourself, but you should be justifying God. Why do you complain to God? God speaks and you need to listen to me. It is unthinkable that God would be unjust. You, Job, are wicked. God doesn't listen to the cries of arrogant men. You can't answer back to God. He is just. God is the all-powerful creator. Who are you? Can you make a snowflake? Are you the creator and sustainer of all things? I am unworthy. I made the behemoth. I made Leviathan. Let me describe it to you. I spoke of things too wonderful for me to know. Now my eyes have seen you. You comforters are wrong, and Job is right. Go and do some sacrifices. Job, here is twice as much as you had before. Right, there we go. So, thank you very much indeed for all your help with that. 
and uh, we are going to look now at these at this huge section of the middle chapters of Job but hopefully some of the dialogue there began to give you a sense of how these middle chapters work and as I said before it's well worth getting yourself into these chapters um, and reading them for, for, for ourselves. God didn't give us a pamphlet and he didn't give us that ridiculous um, uh, you know, couple of pages summary um, with one line per chapter. He gave us the whole book for a reason. So um, it repays um, studying in more detail than we're able to do now. Now then, let me stop sharing that. Here we go. Okay, so last week, that in fact, let me um, let me pray. Let me pray now. Father, thank you very much for um, your words, and thank you for this book of Job. We pray now that you would speak to us and uh, help us to understand more about who you are and what you've done for us. And and as we think about uh, Job, as we think about suffering, as we think about our present circumstances and, and the circumstances of those around us in the world, um, please would you uh, help us to think about how we speak about suffering, both to one another and to you. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So um, we met uh, we met Job last week. He's a righteous man. He's a blameless man, we're told. And we heard of conversations in heaven between um, God and Satan. And Satan's permitted to cause these terrible things to happen to Job. And he loses his livestock and he loses his servants. And finally, he loses all his sons and daughters. And then he's struck down with uh, illness and that and then various questions arise for us did Job do anything wrong to deserve all that happened to him well we saw no he didn't do anything wrong both the author and God himself are clear Job is entirely innocent does that mean then that God is not in control no he's in control but it's more complicated than that because Satan is there um, Satan, a created being, created by God, not independent of him. He needs God's permission to act. Well, okay, if, if that's the case, does God then cause Job's suffering? Well, the author won't quite go there. It's clearly Satan whose hand causes Job's suffering um, rather than God's directly. And yet we can't help but feel the shock that God permits this, permits this to happen. And it's a shock that's going to stay with us through the rest of this long and difficult book. There's no one-line solutions. There's no answers on a postcard. Well, how then can an innocent believer respond to suffering? Well, with godly lament, we saw in, in Job chapter 3. We saw Job surrounded by his friends yet utterly alone and, and this reminded us of Jesus another innocent man who suffered as much as we don't understand why the innocent suffer we can never say that God doesn't know what it's like and so this week our focus is the entire middle section uh, chapters 4 to 37 it's a lot of words it's a lot of talk about suffering and uh, as we saw, as we heard in, in, in the 
the, the bit before, um, it's a lot of dialogue between Job and his friends. And we're going to look at these conversations to see how they help us understand uh, what to say and indeed what not to say in the face of suffering. What do you say, for example, to a colleague who announces one day that they have been diagnosed with cancer? What do you say to a friend who loses a baby or a friend who struggles with deep crippling depression or uh, someone whose husband is in hospital with COVID-19? What, what, what words are appropriate in these situations and other situations? In fact, are words even the right thing at all? This is one of the things that we're going to think about from these chapters. That's one set of questions to consider what we say to others who are suffering. And the other set of questions is more for ourselves. So um, what uh, do we say when we are suffering? And especially what do we say to God and about God when we are suffering? Are, are, you know, for example, are there things that we cannot say that we ought not to say what does God want us to say so big questions and we'll see that they're more closely related than we might at first think we talked last week about the difference between being in the spectator stand um, thinking about suffering kind of more theoretically and then being on the pitch experiencing suffering directly and you know in a fallen world all of us will experience uh, being on the pitch at some point and and in fact we may well be there right now um, for for me and for our family suffering so far has largely been about um, chronic autoimmune disease and intermittent pain and the associated treatments involved um, for others it will look different and I, along that path that we've been along I've found myself asking at different times. Why me? Why us? Why now? Why in this way? And Job is the place where we get to really grapple with these big questions about suffering. And we're not going to get to the end of the book. We heard it in brief just now, but we're not going to get to it properly till next week. So we need to keep holding on. But let's look at first at these so-called comforters, these friends, and then um, and then look at Job to see what all of these people teach us about talking in the face of suffering. So first of all, Job's so-called friends. What not to say to an innocent suffering believer. What not to say to an innocent suffering believer. Job's so-called friends are famous for their ineptitude, you might call it, their crass pastoral care. Um, you, you, your words are a blustering wind, says Bildad to Job in chapter 8. You undermine piety and hinder devotion to God, says Eliphaz to Job in chapter 15. Now, these probably aren't words that most of us would choose to say to someone in deep distress, I hope. In, in most situations and yet there is a puzzle because when we look further at what they say on the surface it isn't all complete um, drivel so in in our first reading that we that Liz read for us in um, chapter 4 verse 17 Eliphaz says 
Can a mortal be more righteous than God? Can a man be more pure than his maker? In other words, what's Eliphaz saying? He's saying next to God, no one is perfect. And actually, what well, the Bible says that in lots of places. And you can find lots of other things like that in the words of, the, of these comforters as you read them. What about the words, again, from Eliphaz to Job in chapter 22 and verse 21? Flip forward to that, chapter 22 um, and verse 21. Eliphaz says, submit to God and be at peace with him. In this way, prosperity will come to you. Accept instruction and, uh, from his mouth and lay up his words in your heart. If you return to the Almighty, you will be restored. If you remove wickedness far from your tent, and assign your nuggets to the dust, your gold of Ophir to the rocks in the ravines, then the Almighty will be your gold, the choicest silver for you. Now, those words wouldn't be out of place in the, in the prophets, speaking to rebellious Israel. And, and preachers have sometimes taken um, those words and uh, turned, you know, made those words into a good sermon for people to, um, to call them back to following Jesus, you know, an evangelist might take those words as their text, uh, except it's Eliphaz who's condemned as a, uh, a worthless uh, comforter at the end of the book. So it's, 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 it's difficult, isn't it? It's not quite as simple as saying that these comforters are godless idiots. The truth is slightly more subtle. Often the words of Job's friends are the right words to the wrong person out of context some of what they say makes sense and you can think of a context in which what they say might be true but the problem is it's the wrong context and they've totally misunderstood job and this misunderstanding leads to extreme frustration which leads them to say things like you know job you're a blustering wind because they're just so cross that he's not listening to them and he keeps on arguing back and it's really annoying because they think we've got it all sorted for you job and you're not listening and they're thinking job you must have done something wrong it's obvious you see if you this is why you're suffering you've done something wrong and, and then, Job, why aren't you listening to us? Why aren't you agreeing with us? And, and why do you just have to insist, Job, that you are innocent? It's obvious you're not. So do you see the thing? He doesn't fit their system. He doesn't fit their way of viewing the world. See, in their world, it, it, it's quite simple. God is absolutely in control. And God is absolutely just and fair. So we might think, okay. So far, so good. And therefore, because God is absolutely just and fair, he always punishes the wicked and he always rewards the innocent. And he does so in this world and he does it pretty soon after the event, you know, because to do otherwise would be unjust, they say. And therefore, if you are suffering, it must be because God is punishing you. So did you hear Eliphaz back in chapter four, verse seven? He said, who being innocent ever perished? In other words, you know, God is just and fair. If you perish, you can't be innocent. But we know what they don't know and what they refuse to hear, which is Job is innocent. There is nothing in his life that directly merits the suffering he's received. 
So the comforters have got the wrong person as they speak, and they therefore say the wrong words to Job, both in tone and in substance. In tone, they lack honesty and sympathy and love. You know, when the person they're trying to help doesn't fit their system, they press on regardless. They do not understand Job because actually they haven't bothered to love him. They haven't bothered to hear him on his own terms. You know, you might say for them, Job is a kind of target, a project, a task to be ticked off the list. And we tut at their crass efforts at helping Job. And yet the question is, have we always loved and listened before we've spoken and tried to solve? Something for all of us to think about as we try and um, help others. See, there are no shortcuts. So they, they, they fall short in the tone of what they say, and they also fall short in the substance. For as much as there are things in what they say that might be true in a different context, overall, there's some, some serious things missing from what they say. Christopher Ash, in his excellent book that I recommended last week, he puts it like this. He says, in their world, their system, there is no Satan, there is no waiting, and there is no cross. No Satan, no waiting, no cross. There's no Satan. You see, for them, the world is simple. There's a God who controls everything. If you suffer, it must be God doing it. That's all there is to say. Well, re remember the unseen reality of the heavenly court. You see, it's more complicated than that. Satan is permitted to cause Job's innocent suffering. It's not easy to understand why. And it creates all the questions that we then ask, but it's not as simple as they make out. So the, there's no Satan in their system. Next, there is no waiting. They rightly say God is just and fair. But they assume that this means that God acts here and now in history to put things right, to punish the wicked, to reward the innocent. And actually, we know that's not how the world works. It's not that there is no justice. But that justice comes at the end. So do you know Jesus's parable about the persistent widow who cries out for justice in Luke chapter 17? She hammers on the door to get the judge out of bed. And G Jesus says, even an unjust judge will give in to that sort of persistence. So will not God, the just judge, bring justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? He will give justice. But at the end when the Son of Man comes, when Jesus returns. Think of persecuted Christians in North Korea, in Pakistan, in Iran, in Saudi Arabia, in, in Syria, in Egypt. If you're, if you're a persecuted Christian in one of those countries or elsewhere, this is, this is really good news. Justice will come, but it's not instant. Hold on. You need to wait. And the comforters don't understand that. No Satan, no waiting. And then no cross. So in their system, do you see, there's no place for innocent suffering. You know, faced with the idea that Job might be suffering and yet be innocent. Well, they kind of go, you know, computer says no, does not compute. Don't get that. Can't be true. They cannot conceive of a world where the innocent suffer 
And as much as we might want to agree that we'd much prefer to live in a world like that, but, you know, think, well, that would be fairer, we, we like to think. We need to remember Jesus suffered. And once again, we, we don't understand suffering. We want to kick against the pain, but God knows what it's like. So the comforters give us plenty of thoughts then on what not to say. And we'll try and think what to say more positively after we've looked more uh, look briefly now at Job. So Job helps us to see what to say to God as an innocent suffering believer. What to say to God as an innocent suffering believer. If the comforters at times said the, the right things to the wrong person, Job says heartfelt things to the right person. And we began to see that last week in his great lament in chapter three. His suffering leads to a passionate longing and wrestling with what is happening to him. He wrestles with God. We saw that in chapter 19. He says, God has attacked me. God has isolated me. Verse verse 21, the hand of God has struck me. Now, of course, we know differently. The, 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 the author has refused to say it's the hand of God. It's very clearly the hand of Satan permitted by God. But, but Job doesn't know that. He's telling it how it feels. And it feels wretchedly painful and isolating and bewildering. Why would God do this? I haven't done anything wrong. Why? 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 And then in the midst of all that darkness in chapter 19... He utters these extraordinary words. Um, verse 25, chapter 19. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I and not another. How my heart yearns within me well of course Handel did some beautiful things with these words he put them alongside Paul's words from 1 Corinthians 15 about Jesus's resurrection in the Messiah but did Job understand what he was saying it's not really clear except that in the darkness the only place that he knew to turn was to God himself. I don't know how this is going to happen, says Job. I feel utterly alone. I feel utterly desolate. And yet somewhere, somehow, I trust that God is going to bring good out of bad and life out of death. He says that. And then in the next breath, he's back to lament, which is so often how it is, isn't it? When we're, when we're suffering. Sometimes we kind of know some words that we ought to say and we know where we ought to turn. And then we're back to just weeping about how dreadful it is. And he wrestles with God. He longs for wisdom, wisdom to understand his suffering, wisdom to answer his great questions. So flip forwards to, to chapter 28, which is a beautiful poem about wisdom about how wisdom is like a precious stone hidden deep underground 
in a mine and, and, and man searches for wisdom but struggles to find it. And the poem describes the struggles in various ways. And then ends with a, a, a brief moment that is a chink of light in the darkness. So verse 23, God understands the way to wisdom. He alone knows where it dwells. And verse 28, look at that. Do you recognize this? Do you see, you, have you heard this before? The fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to shun evil is understanding. So this is why we, we call Job wisdom literature. We put it together with Proverbs, which is all about the fear of the Lord. Remember, the fear of the Lord is not being scared of God. It means being in relationship with him where you honor him for who he is. So what is God doing in this? He's saying, you know, you're longing for wisdom. You're longing for a road map that lays everything out, that answers all your questions and helps you navigate through the world. You know, I, I, I'm, we're saying I want a roadmap that explains to me why, you know, why my husband got cancer, why good people die young, why innocent children get gassed in war zones, why tsunamis and earthquakes bring random indiscriminate suffering on a regular basis, why pandemics happen. I, you know, I want this roadmap so that I can make sense of the world. And God says, well, I, I'm not going to give you a roadmap. Actually, I'm going to give you something even better. I'm going to give you a guide, a person. I'm going to give you me. I'm going to give you myself, God, who made the world, who made you, who knows you better than you know yourself. And I'm not going to give you all the answers, but I am going to make sure that you get home. In our response to, to suffering, so often we, we, we cry out for that wisdom, that roadmap that's so hard to find. But God says, don't, don't just long for the answers. Long for me. I, you know, I'm, uh, he says, I may well not give you the answers that you're seeking, but I've given you my whole self. I've poured out my life for you. It's understandable that you long for the answers, but long for me even more. So what do you say to others who, who are suffering and to God when you are suffering what we desperately need in both of these situations is wisdom there's no blueprint here there's no kind of turn the handle get an easy set of answers there's no operating manual where you can turn to page 32 paragraph 5 to find instructions on oh yes this is what i say to this person in this situation you know, if we try and treat job like that we'll end up like the comforters we'll end up trying to squeeze people into our system we desperately need wisdom Wisdom that's hard to find, wisdom that develops slowly over time and it takes time and it takes years, age, experience. It comes with a close walk with Jesus. We, we need wisdom to know when to speak and when to stay silent. Remember we said last week, you know, in, in one sense, the most helpful thing the comforters did was when they just came and sat with Job and said nothing. And then things went from bad to worse when they opened their, their mouths wisdom we need that is sharpened through each encounter with a, a suffering brother or sister each experience of suffering ourselves wisdom that understands that the world is complicated that there is a satan at work that we we may need to wait to answer the why question 
but wisdom that knows that Jesus identified with us in our suffering. He was the ultimate innocent sufferer. See, if we search for wisdom, we will end up, as Paul discovered in 1 Corinthians, we will end up at the foot of the cross, gazing on wisdom personified and crucified for us. See, as we cry out in pain, he says to us, I am your shepherd. So that even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for he is with me. So, Father God, we thank you for this part of your word that is so challenging and gets right to the root of our humanity and what it means to be human in this fallen world and we pray as we struggle and as we seek to help those who are struggling and particularly in these circumstances now as we deal with the everyday reality of of pain and sickness and sin May that drive us to you, to find wisdom in you, to find wisdom walking with you, knowing that you promise to get us home and you promise to walk with us and that you have come into the world in your son and suffered with us. We praise you for these truths. May we hold on to them. and May we keep drawing near to you and crying out to you as we suffer. Amen.